Welcome back, everybody. Hub Arkish with you until 9 o'clock this evening here at 670 The Score. Talking sports with a great lineup of guests, as well as you, our score listeners. We're broadcasting live from the Hyundai Score Studios, brought to you by your local Hyundai dealers. And right now, it is my pleasure to bring another one of the outstanding guests we have for you tonight in on the Score Hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Dan Pompey, of course, a regular here at the Score, good enough to take time out for us evening Dan it has been a little while I hope everything is going good by you everything's good hub it's good to be with you uh, it's been an interesting uh, month or so here in in Chicago all the things happening obviously with the Bears and interesting month in the NFL too it is uh, and so we're going to talk about those three main subjects the Chicago Bears and their turnover I want to ask you for your uh, take and, and what you know uh, about Brian Flores' lawsuit and where the NFL is at with it right now. And then, of course, there's a, a little football game this Sunday, the Super Bowl. So uh, we'll get to that as well. Uh, but first of all, uh, as always is best, let's keep it local. The Chicago Bears not only have a new GM and a new head coach, but a coaching staff for the most part in place right now. What, uh, what are your observations? What are your takes on the uh, coaching staff that Matt Eberflus has put together so far? Well, I think, um, you know, it's an interesting staff. It's, it's a staff that, uh, you know, is, is a nice blend of people. And I think it's a staff that has a lot of potential. You know, uh, Alan, Alan Williams is a guy who, um, you know, has been around a while and is a kind of a proven commodity as, as a defensive mind and pretty well-respected guy. I think, uh, you know, he'll take, some, he'll take good care of the defensive side of the ball. Luke Getze, a lot of potential, obviously comes with the endorsement of a lot of really respected people in Green Bay and even before that. Um, you know, the one thing that I think makes me a little nervous is some of the inexperience, and that goes not only with the staff, but also, you know, it, there's inexperience in a lot of places, from the general manager down to the head coach down to the offensive coordinator. These are a lot of people who are in their roles for a first first time. You know, that doesn't mean they can't do the job. It just means that we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There, there was a lot of talk, and, I, and as I recall, Matt was even asked about the idea of having someone on his staff with head coaching experience. And uh, I think the only main position still open is running backs, and it looks like he is not going to have anyone here. Uh, with head coaching experience. I, I know that there were a lot of reports that he had targeted Rich Bisaccia for special teams, and Bisaccia chose the Packers apparently instead. Um, and so, you know, you do wonder how much of a factor that will be. I mean, you know, most head coaches are getting their first job somewhere, but they often have at least somebody with them who's been down that road before. And then when you add to it one of the youngest general managers in the league, I suppose if you had to come up with a, a criticism or a critique of what the Bears have done, that's probably the only place you could go. And, you know, it's still possible that he'll name maybe an assistant head coach or, you know, senior consultant or whatever you call him, you know, who has that, that kind of experience that we're talking about. Uh, but still, it, it's, you know, it, it's uncharted territory for a lot of people. And that, that is something I think that should be uh, uh, something that you keep an eye on, could be a concern. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of like, obviously, what Matt Eberflus has done 
as a defensive coordinator. You know, that body of work is solid. Uh, I like his philosophy. I like kind of his image and what he stands for. And, you know, I, I think you and I are of like mind usually in that we like to give people the benefit of the doubt. So, um, you know, hopefully those, those attributes that I talked about are enough to overcome whatever he doesn't know because he hasn't done this before. You know, um, I, I, I don't know if you have any insight into this or not. I, I've been curious, Dan. I don't know if you even bothered to look into it, but but if any of your sources indicated to you, um, I, I'm just, you wonder when Luke Getzey makes the move that he made, why he preferred Chicago over Green Bay. You're, you're leaving, you know, Matt LaFleur, uh, well, you're definitely leaving Aaron Rodgers. We don't know if he's staying or not. Um, uh, and the OC job opened up there. And he comes here to, to work with Justin Fields. He's obviously going to have a lot more control over the offense with Matt Eberflus, a defensive specialist. Um, but did you get any insight as to why Getzy felt that it was a better opportunity here in Chicago than Green Bay? Or did he even have the choice? Was Stenovich always going to be uh, the pick for the OC job in Green Bay? I don't know the answers to your questions, but I would say that, uh, you know, I would think most coaches, if they had a chance to be kind of, you know, the head coach of their side of the ball, which Getsy basically is in Chicago, you know, they would take that over being underneath a head coach who is, uh, you know, the primary play caller and person who is going to get most of the uh, responsibility and, and ultimately credit for whatever is done offensively. You know, that being said, of course, the Packers just saw Nathaniel Hackett, who, who is in the position that Getsy would potentially have been in had he stayed in Green Bay. Uh, Hackett, of course, became a head coach and went to Denver. So, um, you know, th those situations aren't impossible. But then again, you know, you look at a guy like Eric Bieniemy, who can't get a head coaching job. Um, and, you know, people say one of, the, one of the excuses they say is, well, he's not a play caller. You know, he's Andy Reid is the play caller. Andy Reid gets the uh, credit. Of course, that didn't work against Matt Nagy or Doug Peterson. But sometimes it can be a reason that people use for people not getting a promotion. When you look at what's next, Dan, uh, you know, Matt Eberflus has said, Ryan Poles has said they're deep into self-scouting now, evaluating the talent they have here, their own rosters before they make decisions. Um, but knowing that they have limited draft capital and aren't in horrible salary cap shape, the numbers are pretty fluid right now, but it looks like they're going to be in the 28 to $30 million range of cap space without making any significant moves that there may be another 10 to 12 million to clear up post June one with players like Eddie, uh, Eddie Goldman and uh, uh, Danny Trevathan. Um, uh, what do you expect them to do next? Uh, both Eberflus and Poles have said that they intend to try and contend and compete this year. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, they've got enough veterans on the team where they feel like they can make a run. I mean, Obviously, that's going to be dependent on how the quarterback develops and if he takes a big step up in his second year. If he doesn't, they've got no chance, unless, of course, they bench him and replace him with whoever is their number two quarterback, assuming he's a, he's a veteran with some experience. Um, but I think, uh, you know, when, when you do, if you're going to keep players like Khalil Mack and Robert Quinn and Eddie Jackson, 
um, then, then I think you, you're probably going to try to do whatever you can to, to be competitive. And, you know, there's no reason why the Bears can't be a team that's, you know, in, in the 500 range uh, competing for a playoff spot if Fields is a quarterback who is not beating them every week. So um, I think that's what they're looking at, you know. But they, they have a lot of holes to address. They have a lot of issues. And, you know, they don't have a lot of draft capital. So obviously they're going to have to come up with uh, a number of veterans who can help this team who are not on this team now. And a number of them probably going to have to be guys who are on short-term contracts who are, you know, uh, not the highest paid guys out there. They're going to have to hit on those guys. So their evaluation process in terms of, uh, you know, the pro game and what they're seeing in, in other teams is really critical. And that's going to be a, a big a measuring stick, I think, for what this, uh, for Ryan Poles and what his staff can do early in their tenure. Dan, we have one of the biggest stories uh, in sports in some time. It's going to dominate the offseason talk around the NFL. Brian Flores' lawsuit against the NFL uh, alleging racial discrimination. And, you know, it's it's a really tough subject to address because if you don't say what specific people want to hear, you know, immediately you're, you're choosing sides or, or being racist or being too progressive or whatever it may be. Um, the reality is that, that Flores uh, feels that, that he has been treated unjustly and has filed this suit against the league, has sought class action status. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, I don't know if they've actually been given the class action status. It seems to be a, uh, ju- just something that's going to happen, uh, you know, the red tape to get through. And, and until we see who joins the suit, Um, it's hard to go too deeply into this, but just from the 30,000 foot view right now, uh, what's your take on, on, on what Flores has done here and where you think it's going? Well, you know, I think hub, you know, the probably important thing is it it has drawn more attention to a topic that is worthy of more attention and it's creating conversation and it will, continue to create conversation and really continue to create pressure on people to uh, look at the way that they do things and make sure they're doing things the right way. You know, um, I, I, I would be surprised if Brian Flores won the lawsuit. I mean, I don't know, obviously, a lot of things about, you know, what kind of uh, direct evidence his attorneys have of, of, you know, what, what they're accusing people of doing. But um, I think, you know, the, the real benefit, maybe even the purpose of this uh, was to kind of, you know, raise the discussion to a higher level and to uh, uh, make more scrutiny on the process and maybe examine if there aren't better ways of, of doing this. You know, is the Rooney Rule really uh, doing anything? Is it, is it helping people or... or has there got to be another way to, to maybe help minorities advance in the game of football in, in terms of coaching staffs and front office? Yeah, I mean, we're exactly on the same page, Dan. I, I, anybody who wants to dispute that the NFL has a very serious problem uh, in, in the inequity in, in minority hiring for top management jobs, that's just, that's, don't bother. I mean, they clearly have a big issue and it's one that does need to be addressed and be fixed. But this is where it breaks down is people, 
seem to want to just chalk it all up to racism. And, and, and it certainly obviously is going to appear that way when you have this much of a disparity. Uh, but at the same time, you get into each of the individual situations and it is it is sometimes hard to see where racism may have much to do with it and that in many respects it's a broken system you know that, that is a hundred years old that wasn't really set up to deal with this and and, and so um it's going to take a lot more i would think than than just a lawsuit win or lose uh, to to get it fixed and, and and you know to go a step further if if Brian Flores were to win his suit, and he, he could, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, um, but even if he won the lawsuit, I'm not sure I see how that fixes the problem. And so, you know, to me, I would think the greatest benefit, as you just said, is the spotlight that this is shining on it. And, and Roger Goodell, whether we believe him or not, uh, has already come out and said, we have to do better, we're going to go to work on it. Well, we've heard that before, um, but but I think that's probably the best end result that you're going to get out of this lawsuit. Yeah, you know, the, the problem is there's only 32 of these jobs, 32 of these people who are doing the hiring. And, you know, it's hard to say, well, you know, owner X, you need to hire this person for that, that reason. You know, you, you really can't force anyone to hire someone who they don't think is the best person for the job. And I don't think you should either. I don't think anybody wants that. So really, you know, um, to me, I think what you have to look at are kind of methods at the grassroots level of this to try to uh, continue to uh, grow and groom minority candidates so that they are in position uh, to be attractive to head coaches to be promoted. Uh, general managers and then owners ultimately, so they get hired. And it's probably not going to be something that happens overnight. It, it, you know, if you take that approach, it's it's going to be a process that takes years and and uh, you know ultimately pays dividends down the line. Yeah, you know, and I think the the, the part that people just don't focus on is the only way that you can chalk it up 100% to racism is to be able to show and prove that the people who are getting these jobs are not as or more qualified than the people who aren't. And so you look at the nine new head coaches now, I believe eight of them white, one minority, and you say which of those eight coaches is not qualified and not deserving of the jobs that didn't go to guys who appear to be, I still don't understand how Todd Bowles didn't get one of these jobs. Uh, you know, certainly Byron Leftwich, Eric Bieniemy, these are top candidates, um, and yet they didn't get them. Um, but, I'm not sure that anybody can make the argument that, that, that any of these guys who did get them were less qualified or less deserving. Agreed. You know, I think, um, you know, it, it's a good group. It's a strong group. And obviously there were African-Americans, as you mentioned. I did a whole series on, on them last year. Did features on a lot of these guys. Raheem Morris is another one. You know, strong, strong candidate. And, you know, there, there were white people who were strong candidates who didn't get jobs, too. Dan Quinn is one of them, you know. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you, you, could, you could make arguments a lot of different ways. I mean, Leslie Frazier is another African-American to me who's, who's really strong and, and, you know, has, a, has a, a good argument that, you know, why isn't he getting a head coaching job? Um, so the bottom line is there's, you know, there's more candidates that you could make cases for 
than there are job openings. And this is always going to be the case. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's part of the, of the problem that we're dealing with, part of the perception issue that we're dealing with. Clearly, uh, the grassroots uh, path is the one that they have to go through. Uh, there have to be, uh, you know, more people of all races, uh, you know, properly prepared for these jobs. We do have to get to a more equitable hiring outcome, uh, and and hopefully this will be cause for the league to focus on finding a way to make that happen. There are more diversity inclusion experts in the league than ever before, and hopefully they will have some answers. Before I let you go, Dan, the Super Bowl Sunday, Bengals, Rams, uh, it's not a matchup I think a lot of us saw coming, uh, at least from the Bengals' perspective, but they are there, and uh, I'm curious how you see this one going. Yeah, I think it's a really good matchup. Um, You know, as you said, two teams that uh, I think – Everyone doubted, not only through the season, but even in the playoffs. I mean, even look at how the Rams ended the season with a tough loss to the 49ers. The last game of the regular season, they lost the number two seed in the playoffs, went to number four. And uh, now here they are. They beat the 49ers in the championship game for the first time in seven games. I mean, uh, both of them, just really unlikely stories. Bengals getting past the... The Chiefs on the road, the Titans, my goodness. Uh, so, you know, it's a great testament to both teams. I mean, really resourceful teams that have uh, been well coached, have gotten the most out of their teams and found different ways to win. And um, I'm really looking forward to the game. I, I think uh, at this point, I've got to go with the Rams. I, I think, you know, to me, the home field advantage means a little more in a game like this, a Super Bowl, than it does in any other game uh, because, you know, you're not displaced and you're not in the, that kind of middle of a hurricane as most teams are during Super Bowl week. And um, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an advantage. And then, you know, to, to go into your home stadium and feel that comfort of just knowing where everything is and feeling like, you know, we've done this so many times before, uh, to me, that's that that means something. Dan, thank you so much for your time this evening. Enjoy the football game. We'll be back out on the road with the combine and pro days and free agency and the draft coming before we know it. But try and get a little breather in there, and I will look forward to visiting with you again real soon. Okay, good talking with you, Hub. That is Dan Pompey of The Athletic. We're going to take a quick commercial break here. We've got callers lined up already who want to talk about various subjects about the NFL. At 7.40, you you definitely want to stay tuned. I've got um, a labor and employment attorney who is expert in the field. Uh, Nora Kirsten Walsh works for Patsy Frank and Sonatomy right here in Chicago, going to educate us a little bit more uh, on, on employment, minority hiring, on, on, on the lawsuit uh, that Brian Flores has brought, uh, and it'll be coming from somebody who actually has the expertise to discuss it. So stay tuned for that as well. Right now, a very quick break, and then back to your phone calls. Top of the Hour has been brought to you by DuckDuckGo, Privacy Simplified. We're back in just a moment. To have this opportunity to have three African-American coordinators on the same team and to find a way to win the Super Bowl, obviously it'll open people's eyes, but I can't speak on if it changes anybody's mind or changes any thoughts about the hiring process. All we can do is just coach good football. I know all three of us, me, Todd, Keith, all we're trying to do is help these men grow, be in the best position, be the best football players they can be. That's our goal. You know, our goal is to 
help these players be at their best. And it's special and unique when you can ha have these moments. These moments we can grow. And I still think we're getting better. Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich talking about having nothing but African-American coordinators on the Bucks Super Bowl coaching staff. Obviously, that worked out pretty well. I'm Hub Arkish with you until 9 o'clock. We got the phone lines jammed, and I've got another really great guest coming up in a few minutes, so I want to jump right to the phones and get as many of you in as I can. We'll start by going out to Romeoville, Brandon. Let's bring Norman into the show. Norm, how you doing? Hey, Hub. Thanks for... Hey, Hub, thanks for taking my call. Sure. What hey, can I, do for I just you? have one quick statement for the young listeners out there. I saw two quarterbacks destroyed in Wrigley Field. One was Virgil Carter and was, one was Jack Concanon. And I believe it was two weeks apart. But mm -hmm. my question is, do you think this gentleman they brought in from Green Bay will help Justin Fields' development? Mm -hmm. Well, Norm, thank you for the call. I, listen, I like Luke Getze a lot. He's somebody that I was writing about uh, a few weeks ago as someone I thought might be worth an interview for a head coaching spot based on the success of some of these young, lesser experienced coaches. You look at what got him to this position as offensive coordinator of the Bears, uh, worked with Aaron Rodgers for the better part of the last eight or nine years. He was brought in by Mike McCarthy. Um, he left for a year uh, to go to Old Miss to uh, or Mississippi State, I guess it was to to be able to be an offensive coordinator and call plays. Came right back when Matt Lafleur got the job. Has worked under Matt Lafleur and with Aaron Rodgers the last three years. I'm not sure how he could be much better prepared. And, and I love the fact that he is off that. Uh, he didn't work directly with Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan, but he's off this Shanahan McVay. Uh, now Lafleur tree, and that is what is really succeeding uh, in the NFL right now. You've got Zach Taylor off that tree for the Bengals, and of course McVeigh himself in the Super Bowl Sunday. So I'm I'm encouraged. I, I like the Getzey hire a lot as offensive coordinator, and now we got to let him coach and see what he can do. He was brought here to develop Justin Fields, so let's hope that he can. Let's get to Sean, who's out on the road. Sean, how you doing? Hey, Hub. It's great to hear you, man. I love listening to you when you're on the score. Thank so I kind of had a two-part question about the uh, the last guest that you had. One, why do you think that Brian Flores went from being smitten, as NBC Sports Chicago reported, to not being a candidate at all? Do you think that was more Ryan Poles or management? or And it kind of leads into my second question. The fact that the NFL has the Rooney rule, it's a, it's a pretty uncommon rule, you know, where you're, where a corporation essentially is, you know, forced to at least interview these candidates. Do you think there should be more disclosure from these teams on why they may or may not select an individual to be a head coach or a GM? Well, Sean, in, in part one, I don't think Ryan Flores was ever necessarily a favorite here in Chicago. He was one of a long list of candidates. He got an interview. There were some people, I, I guess maybe some talk hosts, maybe some writers who liked him, but um, uh, I, I never was hearing that he was a favorite. And then when Ryan Poles got here, he was given a list of three finalists. He was told he could bring in additional candidates if he wanted to. Uh, but he talked to the three finalists, Dan Quinn, Jim Caldwell, and, and Matt Eberflus, and he fell in love with Matt Eberflus. And he almost seemed a little defensive when he was asked why he didn't bring anybody else in. So uh, I, I just, as far as here, I don't think Flores was a serious candidate. 
Um, uh, as far as uh, more transparency in the hiring process, I think it's required at this point. Again, nobody, I, mean, I shouldn't say nobody. I am convinced, have been convinced for several decades that the NFL has a real problem when it comes to racial equality and they're hiring for top management positions, general managers, head coaches, team presidents. And so, um, but, but I, I, I'm just not willing to make the next leap and say it's because they're all racists. That, that's not logical. It doesn't make sense. And I know a lot of these people. Okay. So what you get to is there are reasons that this is happening and you make an excellent suggestion. Somebody who's finally talking about potential fixes and not talking about who we can blame is that, yeah, more transparency, more explanation, uh, statements from, from ownership, people in the hiring policy. It doesn't necessarily have to be released to the general public to, for it to have everybody you know, dragged around in public, but certainly some type of oversight to make sure uh, that everything is on the up and up and that there isn't decisions being made based on racial bias would be helpful. I think it would be one of a number of excellent first steps. So, you know, good call, Sean. I've got time for one more before I have to break again. Willie is right here on the north side. Willie, how you doing? Hub, I'm a little upset, so I'm trying to stay very calm because there are several things in the last conversations that happened that are not correct. I am okay. an expert in racial diversity, okay. and you guys have said you guys have said so many things. And one of the comments was the last comment you made. Nobody said everybody's racist. What they're saying that's how not how institutional racism works. Well, let me, let me back up for one minute. I'm going to let you have your say. You said you're an expert in racial. What do you do? What? I have a certification in racial diversity. Okay, go ahead. I, I, I work with professionals in racial diversity. Okay. I teach okay. this to psychologists, social workers. I teach at schools and universities on okay. this. Okay, all right. Don't, don't try, okay. try, try not to be upset because we're not trying to upset anybody. I do want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, first, let me explain why I'm upset because you have a broad audience. And people get to hear what you're saying. And you put out misinformation about race and racism. What and was part the misinformation? Of that misinformation yeah, okay, on. one, it does not matter the race of the person who's in charge. It matters the race of the person who's being offended. So just because there are black people in charge doesn't mean it's not racism. So just because the biz hired a black general manager doesn't mean the institution or the process itself isn't still racist. It is. So it has nothing to do with the black person in charge. It has to do with the concepts and the ideas. Let me give you a second example. The idea that you have to create something special for one group of people because the people in charge have the racist problem is insulting itself. This is the second time I've heard on the score somebody suggests that we get a camp or we create something special to educate black people on how to be professionals and how to, to run teams, that in itself, that idea in itself is racist. The well, problem... I didn't say anything resembling that. Now, now let, you know, I, I want to let you have your say, but let, let's just talk. Let me, let's back up here a minute, okay? I, and I'm going to have to run. I don't want to cut you off. I, I want to hear answers, okay? I don't want to hear complaints. N nobody said anything about it not being racist because they hired a black man. I pointed out that it was a black man who hired a white man. I didn't make any broader comments than that. But Willie, what, what are the answers? That's what we need to be talking about, okay? The answers if people were to listen. And what I teach, a part of the answer is teaching people where they come from, their own social location, and how where they come from allows them to only choose people that they're... And if we can teach people that, then we can go a long way. Yes, there's time for answers, 
But we don't ask for those answers. We keep going over the same problem. Willie, I'm sorry. We did not drop you. Your phone dropped you. I apologize for that. I, I was interested to hear what you have to say. Fortunately, we have an expert that I know coming up next. Uh, Nora Kirsten Walsh is a labor and employment attorney for Patsy Frank and Samotny right here in Chicago. And Nora, good enough to give us some of her time this evening. We're going to see how much more actual fact and information we can get. Um, uh, Willie, if, if you're still listening, I, if you'd like to finish, I'm sorry that your phone dropped. I've got guests until 820, but we will be taking some more calls, I believe, at 820. So feel free to call back then and we can continue that conversation. Right now, though, we have to take a very quick commercial break. And when we get back, we will have some expertise for you. Labor and employment attorney Nora Kirsten Walsh is next. What would you like to see come as a result of this suit that you have filed? I would like to see the hearts and minds, and I, and I say that, I want the hearts and minds of the people making those decisions to change in a way where they want to or, or have a feeling to hire someone of color, um, that they can relate to that person, that they can uh, build a relationship with that person, because I think that's, that's a little bit of the issue. Um, the familiar, familiarity isn't there, and I think we need to open up a little bit more, and um, there's an opportunity for that. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Hub Arkish here with you until 9 o'clock. That was Brian Flores speaking on ESPN, talking about what he hopes to accomplish with the lawsuit he has filed against the National Football League and three of its member teams, the Miami Dolphins, New York Giants, and Denver Broncos, uh, claiming not just racial discrimination, but certainly that is at the heart of the lawsuit. And because... I am not a lawyer and have a bad habit of occasionally trying to practice without not only not having passed the bar, but never even gone to law school. I thought it might be a good idea to go out and get us somebody with expertise on the subject. Uh, Nora Kirsten Walsh is a labor and employment attorney for Patrick Frank and Sabotny right here in Chicago. Uh, full disclosure, they are my attorneys, have been for 25 or 30 years now for personal and business. That's how highly I think of them. Uh, Nora, fortunately, I have not been sued in the past with any claims like this, so uh, we have not had the occasion to work together, but I certainly do appreciate you taking time out to join us this evening. Hi, well, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, Nora, you know, and this is such a, a volatile subject. Uh, we've already, uh, I've angered one caller by having a conversation uh, with another guest about it. And, and um, I think we start from the point of, I don't believe anybody is debating that the NFL has a problem in, in racial equity and its hiring of top management. Um, but looking at this particular suit, to the extent that you've been able to look at it, um, how difficult is it to prove racial discrimination cases? I, 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 it's hard to even figure out to the, to the layman where the evidentiary bar may be set. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. They can be hard to ultimately prove and prevail at trial. Of course, a lot of discrimination cases get settled out of court or are resolved you know, earlier on motion practice. Um, but at least with respect to his first claim, uh, Mr. Flores does face a pretty high bar. His first claim is a Section 1981 claim under uh, Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act, which is a claim for intentional discrimination. And Section 1981 is a post-Civil War statute that basically provides that all persons have the right to make and enforce contracts 
uh, and enjoy the benefits of the laws in the same way as enjoyed by white, by white citizens. And the Supreme Court in 2020 held that plaintiffs are held to the standard of showing that race was a, quote, but-for cause of the injury. That's a very high standard under Section 1981. Um, you'll note that he also brings state uh, claims under state laws, the human, state, New York state human rights law, New Jersey human rights law, New York City human rights law, and he says that he's going to bring in the future a claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Um, interestingly, the Supreme Court in that same decision uh, noted that the standard under Title VII is that race has to be just a, quote, motivating factor, not the sole or but-for cause. So I guess that's the long answer to your question. He certainly carries a burden. It will be his burden ultimately to establish uh, discrimination based on race. So in attempting to prove that race is a motivating factor, is it necessary for Flores and his attorneys to prove that lesser candidates of a majority class are being promoted over more qualified minority candidates? Well, he will have to prove his case through evidence, you know, ultimately, again, to show that actions taken or not taken were based on race. And he'll go through the discovery process to try to discover evidence to support his claim. I would say, you know, again, of course, we aren't representing either side here. and we, we aren't privy to all the information that the two sides are. Um, but I would say if, if lesser qualified candidates were in any situation promoted over a minority candidate, that would certainly be relevant evidence that he would point to. Um, but again, his, his, what he needs to do ultimately will be to find different, uh, to find evidence that will help him establish that the decisions were based on race. You so, know, he, he inserts numerous... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, I'd rather hear you. Please go ahead, well, <laughs> well, that's fine. I mean, we're all kind of talking about this, right? And mm -hmm. he, as you noted, or maybe you haven't noted, but it, it, it previously in, in, the, in your um, session this evening, he inserts star statistics throughout the complaint. And it seems as though he's trying to make a case for statistical and or circumstantial proof that race must have played a role in a number of these hiring decisions. Um, so that's, I think that's what he's trying to get at here. So again, going back to your question, it would certainly be relevant, but I don't know if that's something he has to prove ultimately. He seems to be pointing to a number of things here to try to establish that he will perhaps ultimately use, um, if possible, to try and establish his case. Visiting with Nora Kirsten Walsh. Nora is a labor and employment expert at Patsy Frank and Samotny right here in Chicago. Uh, outstanding law firm that I've dealt with for a number of years. And, and, and my next question actually was going to be, Nora, we all point to the, and, and I, I have to keep, I hope, reminding the audience, I, I won't say nobody. I don't know what's in everybody's mind. I absolutely firmly believe that this is a serious problem that the NFL needs to address and fix. There is definitely racial inequality in the hiring of top management candidates, be it top front office, general manager people, or head coaches. But one of the things that, that everybody kind of jumps to first is the fact that 70% plus of the players in the National Football League are, are African-American or minority, and yet less than 10% of the top management are. Is that ratio in itself relevant, or, or, or is that just an unfortunate byproduct of what's going on here? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think it is relevant, again, because I think he's going to be pointing to circumstantial or statistical evidence, ultimately. Um, he says, I think it's in the beginning of his complaint, um, he seems to be saying that the pool of potential candidates here who are qualified is majority black. 
in the beginning, he says that something along the lines of most players, most former players, desire to coach for their post-playing careers. So ultimately, it could be relevant to the extent that the evidence ultimately bears out that the pool of interested candidates um, is similar to the number of former black players. That, in fact, that this, um, if we look at the pool, that the pool itself is, is a very high percentage of, of black candidates that are being bypassed. Again, that's, that's what, it seems, what he seems to be pointing to here. Yeah, what, and what intrigues me about that question is I've been doing this for over 40 years. I don't know how many thousands of players I've known of, of every race, and and the great majority of them actually don't want to coach. And, and so I don't know, you know, how you actually, right. you know, dig down to those numbers and present those numbers. I one one of the specific claims here that also intrigued me was, you know, the Bill Belichick texts, and some people have called them a smoking gun which I don't really understand at all, because while I fully understand how hurtful it must have been to Flores when he received those texts and, and how unfortunate it was and that he was then faced with the decision as to whether to go ahead and go on the interview or not. But, but from a legal perspective, Bill Belichick has nothing to do with this case. He does not work for the Giants, who were the team in question. Um, the Giants have, have adamantly denied that a decision had already been made. And so I'm not sure how that even becomes evidence of anything, let alone what some people are calling a smoking gun. Am I missing something there? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting, too. I, I think of a smoking gun, uh, I think to your point, as something that clearly directly shows discrimination. And I think what this clearly directly shows, or, well, maybe it doesn't clearly, but what he will say is that it shows that the Rooney Rule wasn't being followed. Um, uh, the spirit of the Rooney Rule, Rooney Rule was not being complied with. Um, but I think there's a couple things that we could look at here. I think it's relevant to the timing, of course, um, because if, if in fact, you know, it, it, they, they, they might be relevant to show that the Giants really weren't even considering him. Uh, and it just seems to be, again, one of the many things he points to in his 58-page complaint as evidence that the league and its members were sort of systematically uh, discounting or discriminating based on race. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if it's a smoking gun. I ultimately don't know if it's something that will be used uh, if this case gets to trial uh, or arbitration. Uh, it's hard to know if this would be something that he would point to to ultimately prove his case. I think it looks like he's just sort of trying to lay out a framework here and paint a picture, a pretty stark picture, uh, of, of, what, of what goes on uh, with respect to hiring decisions at the NFL. But I, I think we have to just sort of wait and see um, the relevance of a lot of the things that, that he points to. Nora, one of the things that's intrigued me the most about this, as far as the case itself, not the topic or the subject, um, is that my understanding is that he's asked for the case to achieve class action status, and I believe that there are procedural issues there, uh, but that, that, that at least I've been told that that is likely to happen. And, and what I'm most intrigued by is to see how many others join the class and what type of additional evidence might be brought. Um, is there any light you can shed for us on that process and how that might work? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know at this early stage, um, but you know, he, he will, he will, he, he clearly is trying to, to, as you say, plead this as a class. He's pled it as a class, a fairly broad class that uh, is, is how he, uh, he's proceeding here. And I think we'll just have to see. He, he says that basically the class should be all black head coaches, uh, offensive and defensive coordinators and quarterbacks, as well as managers, and black candidates for all of those positions. 
Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how many people come forward, but ultimately he's going to have to establish to have a class. Uh, there are various factors, as you noted, numerosity, uh, impracticality of joinder, common questions of law or fact that apply to all of the potential class matters, the typicality of, of the claims uh, as to all of the class members, and the adequacy of representation. Is he a, is he a good class representative? And again, I, I am, I'm certain that, you know, the defendants will, will try to, um, you know, argue against class certification, and he will try to uh, prove that this is, an, is, an, this is a, a good case for class certification, and we'll have to see how that plays out. But there are certainly procedural steps, uh, as you know, that he'll have to comply with and have to, have to satisfy in order for this to be proceed as a class action. Visiting with Nora Kirsten Walsh, who is a labor and employment attorney for Patsick Frank and Samotny Law Firm here in Chicago. And Nora, I'm going to have to let you run in just a couple minutes, but I, I'm curious, um, the Rooney Rule, uh, in, in your experience, in, in cases that you've been involved in, I'm sure they've gone in, in all different directions, and, and hopefully most of them have been aimed at, at achieving some type of equality as an endgame. Um, what, what is your reaction to the Rooney rule? Does it, does it appear to be even helpful to the NFL in claims uh, against any kind of racism or racial bias? I mean, it's really hard for me to say. I, I haven't really studied it in all honesty in any depth to know. Certainly if you read his complaint, uh, it, it appears, if you take his complaint at face value, it appears that it is not effective uh, because of the stark numbers that, that are pointed to throughout the complaint. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, there, as you, I think as you said, there are the numbers, uh, there, the numbers are, are problematic. And mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to know, again, how the Rooney Rule will fit into all of this as far as him trying to establish uh, intentional discrimination here. I think these are all things that we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly not effective. I don't think anybody would make the argument that it has been. Uh, but I'm almost wondering if he's not arguing that, that it's part of the problem. Uh, you know, it, you sever, the, the, one of the main claims here is that he, was, he wasn't forced to, but he was asked to endure a sham interview. And, and basically what the Rooney Rule says is, is that every NFL team much, must interview at least two minority candidates, uh, one of them in person, before they can hire a head coach, regardless of race. And, and so, you know, I understand, or I'd like to believe that the intent was good when the league came up with it, but the end game is that it lends itself to the kind of abuse that he's alleging. Right. I mean, it may well be that a, a result of this, I, I'm, I'm speaking, I, I don't, I have no insight on this whatsoever, but it, it may well be that that rule will be looked at and, and examined. Uh, for sure. But, but you know, I, again, I, as far as how it fits in here into his lawsuit, I think we'll have to wait and see um, what, he, what, what evidence he uses to try and establish racial discrimination here. Um, so I, I think it's, it is an interesting issue, though. There, there's a lot in the complaint that he points to. Nora, I really appreciate your time tonight. Before I let you go, I have one more question. I'm, I apologize, it's a little broad, but, but whatever you can give me on it. Uh, in your experience, uh, I, and I don't even know, I'm going to assume working on both sides of these cases, uh, plaintiffs and defendants, um, are there steps that you've seen taken? Are there traditional uh, means or programs that can be used to eliminate racial bias uh, in hiring? Are, are there things that you're aware of that have been more effective than others? Sure. I think a lot of uh, entities uh conduct various kinds of training. Of course, there's standard anti-harassment, anti-discrimination training, but diversity and inclusion training, 
I think a lot, a lot of uh, companies and, and entities are um, looking at these issues more with, an, with, with a hope of, of hiring and attracting minority and diverse candidates and, of course, retaining them uh, once, once employed. So I think training, I think policies, I think discussions are certainly occurring, and that's a, that's a good development for sure. Uh, Nora, just just a quick follow up on that, and I promise I won't keep you any longer. Um, but you, I'm hearing a lot of call for transparency, and, and that's one that I wonder about a little bit, because at the end of the day, these are still private businesses owned by you know individual entrepreneurs. Um, uh, how, how do you, how do you create transparency uh, without getting too deep into someone's private business? I think that's a million dollar question. I think that's a wonderful question. I think it's a balance. And I do think uh, there is a, um, you know, there are, are entities and companies want to keep certain business decisions, um, you know, not necessarily in the public eye. Uh, but there is a cry for greater transparency, as you know, given the, uh, the inequities and the numbers that we're seeing. So I think it's, it's going to be I think it's going to be interesting and things that will play out. But I think that's a, it's something that I think all entities are dealing with and grappling with and trying to make decisions that make the most sense for their businesses. Nora, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. You've certainly educated me on a few of these points. Again, Nora Kirsten Walsh is labor and employment attorney for Patsy Frank and Samotny. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a good rest of the evening. Thank you so much for having me. You as well. All right, guys, we are going to wrap up another hour here on The Score, uh, and we're going to move on from the lawsuit. It's a tough conversation to have. I can see from the text line and some of your calls, uh, people get emotional, people take sides. Uh, I, I want to just state as clearly as I can, I am on the side of finding a way to have more minority hiring for top management jobs in the NFL, be it head coach, general manager, team president. It clearly is not equal right now. It clearly needs to be better. But what we're not going to accomplish is getting anything fixed by just you know, choosing a side and going to our corners and arguing that they're all racists or they're not racists. That, that is not the, the issue at this point. The issue is how do they fix it what kind of programs can be put in place that will work better than the Rooney Rule? Because clearly the Rooney Rule is not working. And, and so hopefully uh, the type of conversation that we've had in the last hour, the conversation with experts like Nora, will help advance the cause. Uh, at the end of the day, I'd like to think that we all want the same thing. I can only tell you what I want, which is to find a way to fix the problem and, and not to focus on laying blame or how the problem occurred. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we've got Eric Edholm up. Eric, of course, the draft expert for YahooSports.com. He was in Mobile. And we'll talk about the upcoming draft class in just a moment right here on The Score.